Well, imagine with me that it is the year 35 AD in Jerusalem. You and literally thousands of others have come to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was no ordinary man, but God in the flesh, dying for sins, raised on the third day, and living forevermore. So those who believe this are knit together with him and with one another. And all throughout Jerusalem, each week, in various times and settings, there are pockets of covenanted fellowship and worship and learning going on. Others are coming to believe in this Jesus like you have. More and more are identifying with his people. Occasionally the authorities threaten us. Occasionally a few of our kind get beat up. But we're undeterred. Our fellowship is real. Our prayers are sweet and strong. We see prayers answered. These early days within the church of Jerusalem are so new, so awe-filled, so otherworldly. But along the same lines, at the same time, the threats are growing more severe. One of our church's leaders was stoned to death in the public square for preaching the gospel of Jesus. It was then that it became clear that there was an official campaign to squash out people like us and what we believe. Eventually, reluctantly, you decide that it is best to flee the city the place where you have lived your whole life, where you grew up, where everything is familiar. You flee not just for personal survival, but for the, but for the church's survival. And you leave. Family. You leave. Everything you've ever known to escape to some city where Christianity is not on everyone's radar. Some flee to the south, some flee to the north. We spread out all over some go 300 miles away from Jerusalem to get away from the threats. But wherever Christians find themselves near other Christians, they meet together. They form churches. And just like they were once told by someone about Jesus' death and resurrection and called on to believe, so they do the same to others. They tell them. They call on them to believe. And some hear that message and do believe. And yet some reject it and are angry about it. Fast forward a whole decade. Life's hard. You miss home now more than ever. Jerusalem is no safer now than it was when you left, and so you've stayed, or perhaps you've moved around a little bit. The gospel is still true to you. You're not giving up on it, but it's harder and harder to get by, to make ends meet. It's harder and harder to find people who will make trade with you, who will do business with you because you identify with this Jesus. Most Christians you know are barely getting by. And there are still threats of imprisonment, or even worse, even in these outlying cities. Yes, the church still meets together, and it does what it's always done. 
But you miss terribly the preaching and teaching that you had in Jerusalem. Pastor James was his name. It's what you were used to for some years before you had to flee. Now in this smaller congregation, fighting is going on now more than ever. Some Christians seem to be going through the the motions of their Christian life. Some of your Christian friends are beginning to wonder if there's a way that they can stay Christian and yet be cozy with the world enough to get what they have. There's jealousy there. You too have wondered, wondered at times whether there's a way to stay Christian and just make small compromises to keep yourself in good graces for trade and society. And life is hard not just for these religious reasons. You're human, the same as anybody. Your marriage isn't always easy. Your kids are often frustrating. Your loved ones back home, some of them have passed away. Some you couldn't return for the funeral for. Others have a chronic illness. You yourself haven't been feeling great for a long time, and you have no idea what that's about. Then one Saturday evening, a Christian friend tells you that Pastor James, back home, he's written a letter to the Christians who are scattered abroad, and it's being copied in each town and then passed off to the next town, and it's now reached your little town. And your friend has heard that tomorrow morning, when the church meets together, as it always does, this time, Pastor James's letter is going to be read out loud to the whole church. And so you wake up that Sunday morning, and as usual, you meet up with your brothers and sisters in the church, and there's excitement in the air. There's anticipation about what Pastor James might have written on. You think maybe he can make sense of some of our struggles. You think maybe he can give us a word of encouragement to buoy us up in all this seeming chaos and difficulty and heartache. And so one of the elders takes his spot at the front of the meeting of the church and he begins to read this letter from James. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. You think that's it, that's us, that's our James. So humble, doesn't even call himself the brother of Jesus, but servant of Jesus. What's next, James? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The elder continues to read on in James's letter but you don't hear anything else he says. You're stuck on that first line. You're bewildered by that first line. Consider it pure joy when you meet trials or hardships of any kind in every kind. That seems irrational. It seems counterintuitive. Trials are not joy, they're sorrow. Ease is joy, fun is joy. It seems impossible that hardships could be considered a joy. It maybe even seems insensitive. 
You might be tempted to think if you were this man hearing James's letter read in that context, in that setting the first time, well, things have really improved in Jerusalem, apparently. Must be nice and cushy for Pastor James back there, but not here for us. You might be thinking, I got to get my hands on that letter, or at least a copy of that letter. I need to read it slowly and carefully and study it and ponder it, because it's either irrational and impossible and possibly insensitive, or it's otherworldly. It's true. And this is a game changer. This flips everything else I know upside down. Well, here we are almost 2,000 years later, and we have our hands on James's letter, don't we? We're a lot like those people who first heard it read. We're spread out. We're occasionally marginalized, sometimes disenfranchised. We don't always get along. We're frustrated. At times we worry. Some of us are going through the motions. Life is hard. Sometimes nowhere feels like home anymore for us. That's us too. Heartaches and hardships of various kinds. And so we have James's letter, and we can take it slowly. We can take it in bit by bit to ponder it and to to try to make sense of it and to humbly and prayerfully seek to apply it to our lives, even when it seems irrational or impossible or at first insensitive. I think what we'll find as we study the first half of James 1 today is that this is not irrational or unrealistic. It's a game changer. It is otherworldly. And it's what you'd expect from a religion or a faith that has a crucifixion as its epicenter. It's what you'd expect. It's upside down from the world's way of thinking. So let's read on in James's letter. We'll take it in bit by bit this morning and then section by section in the course of weeks to come. It's not just verse 2 that talks about trials. It's all the way to verse 12. That's our section for this morning. Let's read on in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, 
he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I see four turns in James's teaching on trials in these verses. The first turn in these verses is the most otherworldly, most difficult, and so it'll take the majority of our time. The first turn in James's teaching on trials is that there's purpose in trials. There is purpose in trials or hardships. James knows, James knows that trials will come. He doesn't say, if trials come, he says, when trials come, they are inevitable. We know that from Jesus. In this world, you will have tribulation. We know that from experience, that trials are inevitable. In some ways, life is like a string of trials, from one to the next, some overlapping, some reprieve in between at times, but it's a string of various trials. As my father-in-law likes to say, as a filler in between events, on to the next crisis. <laughs> or as my friend's dad sometimes says when the phone rings, well, here we go. <laughs> That's what life's like. And James speaks of trials as various, various kinds, various in their kind, in their degree, in their length, in their severity, and in their source. Some trials we create for ourselves. Some trials find their way to us through the hands of sinners. And some trials just sort of happen. They sort of happen as part of living in a fallen world. Everything from mere inconveniences or frustrations to things that are breathtakingly grievous. The things that are blips on the screen in our lives and those things which never go away or forever leave their fierce imprint. These trials of life are overlapping, intermingled, complicated. James's word for various is almost like there's a tapestry of trials. They're variegated. And they seem to come out of nowhere. They meet us. James uses the same word that Jesus uses when he gives that parable of the man who was going to Jericho. And on the way, he was met upon with bandits. They landed on him. He was fallen upon by these bandits as they overtook him. And trials do that. They're surprising. Sometimes they're violent. But these various trials, these different forms of suffering, it also means here that no matter the trial, it's of the same kind. They're varied, and yet they're of the same kind. Because James can talk about trials in general in a certain way, that even though they're varied, they can all be in the same category, all addressed and applied like James is doing here. Though they're varied, they all have the same purpose for the Christian. Imagine a ledger with two columns, two columns, and in one column, it's labeled purposeful and worth rejoicing in. And then there's this other column, 
on this ledger, and that could be labeled chaotic, mere chance, worthless, deserving of your despair. What James is saying is that for the Christian, any trial, every trial of any kind, any duration, and from any source, it goes in that first column, always, every one of them. It goes under the heading of purposeful and worth rejoicing in. And none of them go under the other heading of chaotic and pure chance and worthless and stupid and and worth despairing. I know that that is upside down thinking compared to what the world around us says. It is upside down compared to our own natural instincts. But James, he not only insists that this is true, he actually says that we know this. Verse three, you know that. You know that. Isn't that interesting? He says we know this. So we better stick around long enough to find out what we know, according to James. What is the purpose that James has in mind for these trials or, or purposes? Well, verse three, he tells us that trials are the testing of your faith. The testing of your faith. I, I know myself, I immediately grimace at the thought of my faith being tested. I don't like tests. I didn't like them in school. And now that I'm out of school, my first year out of school this year, can you believe it? (laughs) I I, I don't go looking for tests. I'd I'd rather not know what I don't know, (laughs) right? If I don't take a test, I don't fail a test. But as soon as I say that out loud, I know I don't want to live in that world. That's not the world we live in. I appreciate tests. It's good to know. We want things tested. I currently drive a newer model truck. It's the first year of that model. It's not often that I have a new truck or a new vehicle, but I do right now. Warranties are nice sometimes, right? The steering wheel squeaks when I turn it. It's an otherwise nice vehicle. I like it. I've had it into the shop. I tell them the steering wheel squeaks. They say, we know. All of them do. I say, fix it. They say, we can't. And I think, who tested this thing? Who was driving around before they released these things and went, yeah, it's not bad. (laughs) Send them. Yeah, if I ever find that guy, you know? And that's something so insignificant and mildly inconvenient as a, a little bit of noise while I drive an otherwise safe and reliable vehicle. How infinitely more important is the testing of our faith? Do you know what's worse? What's worse than being eternally lost? What's worse than being unsaved, not forgiven? What's worse than not having genuine faith? It's thinking you do. It's thinking that you do. It's thinking that you're not lost, that you are saved, that your faith is genuine. It's good to not be deceived. It's a good thing for faith to be tested. We better know now whether our faith is real before it's too late. Charles Spurgeon said, 
it's better to be taught by suffering than it is to be taught by sin. It's better to be taught by suffering than it is to be taught by sin. A couple of passages come to mind about examining ourselves and the testing of our faith. Like 2 Corinthians 13.5, where Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. I think of 1 Peter 1, where Peter says, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, that faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Now, 1 Peter 1 especially talks about the testing of your faith in a rather optimistic way. It's incredibly optimistic. God is not looking to flunk you on this test. God does not grade so strictly that he fails everyone who is below in A- minus on this test. So here, James's word about the testing of your faith in a similar light, with, with some measure of optimism. Sure, some professing Christians need to know that their faith is simply a profession, and it's not real, it's not genuine. And trials can help you with that. But the testing of faith is not just for people like that. It is good and needed for those who are true Christians as well. The testing of your faith is more precious than gold. So do you want to know why I believe that I have genuine faith? There are multiple reasons, but one of them is that I still say with Job... Though he slay me, yet I will serve him. I don't say that perfectly, but I say it genuinely. I've known suffering. I don't maybe have the same trials that you do. I don't know whose are worse. It's not worth comparing. But trials, whoever's they are, and wherever their source comes from, whatever severity and duration they have, trials for Christians test faith. They prove faith. That's a good thing. They prove that we haven't yet given up if we keep on believing. More than that, James says that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. What a great word, steadfastness. Staying power. Trials have a steadying effect. Like a muscle that gets stronger when it faces repeated resistance, so trials build spiritual muscles. They have staying power. You know that's how muscles work, right? You don't have to look like Drew Hodge to know this. You, you, in lifting weights, you damage muscles and then you let them rest and then they build themselves up and they become stronger and sometimes even get larger. Trials do that. They grow our faith. James says even more in verse 4. 
And let that steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Notice that there's a command there. It's not just a promise. Let, in verse 4, is a command. Let steadfastness have its full effect. Not all trials have their full sanctifying effect in our lives. And maybe no trial in this world, in this lifetime, will ever have its full effect upon us. But that's the goal. That's what trials have the potential to do. Full sanctifying effect. And one day, when it's all said and done, that's exactly what we'll have. We'll be perfect. We'll be complete, verse 4 says. We'll be lacking in nothing. That's where faith and the trying of our faith is leading us to a full effect of perfection and completion and glorification. At our last Lord's Supper service, I preached from Romans 8. And some of the verses that we covered are these, like verse 28, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In verse 30, it says, for those whom he predestined, he also called. In those he called, he also justified. In those whom he justified, he also glorified. So at the risk of repeating myself, let me Repeat what I said at that Lord's Supper service. I said, you can graph this like you were in algebra. And you can put a point down over here in eternity's past where God's saving plan for you began. And you can put a point over here in eternity future when it's all said and done, when it's settled and you're with him and there's no more sin and you're like Jesus, you're glorified. And there's a line connecting these two. And what Paul is getting at, what James is also getting at, is that everything in life is on this axis. It's not someplace else. It's not off the chart. It's not off the line. It's on the line. It's in this trajectory from your predestination to your glorification. No matter how hard, no matter how bewildering, no matter how desperate, no matter how sin-filled, it seems to be. I remember seeing an interview with a chainsaw woodcarver. Maybe I saw this in a movie, I don't know. Uh, but I remember seeing, I have this image, a, a reporter asking a chainsaw woodcarver to explain his process in moving from a, a block of wood to this beautiful three-dimensional sculpture. And the chainsaw Woodcarver said, well, I have an image in my head and I just take off every bit of wood that isn't that image, right? That's what God is doing to us. He's at it bit by bit. He's a skillful craftsman. Sometimes his cuts hurt. Some chunks of the flesh that need knocking off are bigger than others. At times we look and we say, did that need to go? We can trust him. He knows. He's got something in mind that we don't see. We don't see how that stroke 
of his chainsaw or his scalpel or his sandpaper was for the eternal good of our souls, but we, we must trust him. And it's on that basis that James says his most profound thing of all, what we skipped in verse 2, consider it joy when you meet trials. Consider it joy. Now let's be honest, that seems hard, that seems at times impossible to count trials as joy. We know that we instinctively shirk from pain, right? No one puts their hand in a fire and keeps it there. God made us to pull it out real fast. And so it seems like that's a natural reaction that we should have to trials. And indeed, it would be a broken mind that enjoyed pain or that sought pain out. And that's not what James is calling us to here. James isn't calling us to enjoy suffering, and that's it. He's not calling us to seek suffering. He's not telling us to pretend that suffering isn't suffering. He isn't calling you to ignore those psalms which cry out in deep lament. No, he expects you'd use them. James isn't wanting us to fake smiles as we cry on the inside or to fake giddiness, to have a cheesy, happy-go-lucky attitude. What James is calling us to is actually harder than any of those cheap imitations of considering it joy. It's harder, but it's also more real realistic than any of those cheap imitations. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, this command, to count it all joy, is the hardest duty that was ever required of hearts distressed. He says this is the hardest command for hearts distressed. But Goodwin went on, and yet God would not require it if it were not attainable. Considering trials as joy is attainable only because of all the other things we've already considered about verses two through four. Joy isn't just cheesy happiness. It is deep-seated confidence. It is acceptance. It is peace. It is resolve. Joy is a decision, not just an emotional reaction. It's a decision. So James says, count it joy or consider a trial to be joy. Acknowledge that this, tr this trial is, is worthy of your confidence, worthy of your peace, worthy of your acceptance because of the promises that it brings. Rejoice in the opportunities for steadfastness created by inconveniences and diseases. Rejoice not in the trial itself, but what you know about God in and through this trial based on his word. God's word is like a pair of binoculars that we look out in the world upon us. And it changes things. It brings things closer to reality. We have to keep picking up this book and keep saying, this is what it says. Apparently, my eyes deceive me i got to look through the binoculars of his word. We need to consider 
A trial is a Romans 8.28 thing. We need to reflect on the fact that Jesus prunes the vine. He prunes the vine. He cuts it back so that it will grow. He's the vine dresser. He's the gardener. We can trust him. Rejoice in what you know from your own experience about your own past trials. Doesn't every one of us in this room know that when trials come, we, we pray more, don't we? When our hearts are broken, most of us have a real desire to go to God's word, to get comfort for our souls, to find some rest, some rock to stand on. We know from experience that in trials, we Christians anyway, we cling to God more tightly. We've often felt communion with him more intimately. We've often learned of his ways, even more theologically. And that's why James can say, you know, for you know, you know this already. So when trials come, when they meet us, not just when they uh, are over, not just when they start to show some signs of sanctifying work in our lives, but right from the presence of them, from the, from the welcome mat that they put in front of us, then we can consider it joy. Mark it in the column marked purposeful and God-ordained and sanctifying and worthy of joy. I was greatly convicted this week with the thought, with the realization maybe, that joy is not the same thing as acceptance. Joy is not the same thing as acceptance. It's not enough to get through a trial without losing my faith. Joy is not the same thing as survival. We're to have faith and steadfastness work its full effect. We're to rejoice in God's careful surgery on us, mysterious as it is. We're to be conscious of what is happening at any moment on an eternal salvation level. That's hard to do. Again, I know. We need to view the trial, though, as God does. We need to believe his word to be true. We need to feel unthreatened by trials. What can man do to us? God loves us. We need to feel loved and cared for in the midst of our trials. And again, that's hard to do. Charles Spurgeon gives us encouragement here. That old Baptist preacher said, All the grace that I have had for my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. In other words, not much. But the good that I've received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. Spurgeon struggled with bouts of debilitating depression. And he came to see that even in those darkest seasons of his life, God was working good and blessing 
So that the depression was almost like a foreshadow of good things to come. He said, this depression comes over me whenever the Lord is preparing a larger blessing for our ministry. The cloud is black before it breaks, overshadows before it yields its deluge of mercy. Depression has now become to me as a prophet in rough clothing, a John the Baptist heralding the nearer coming of my Lord's richer blessings. So friend, I don't know what you have on your mind this morning as you're thinking about trials and suffering. I know what some of you have on your mind, actually. I don't know what you will have on your mind in days or years to come. I do not know how hard whatever it is you're going through is to you right now or will be in the future. But I know God's word to be true. Do I feel, do you feel inadequate for this kind of thinking and feeling and living? I sure do. And James thought you might because he knows that we're not yet perfect not yet complete, and we're still lacking something, even though one day we will lack nothing. And that's why he next tells us about a resource for our trials. Secondly, we have wisdom for trials. Perspective in trials, wisdom for trials in verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. What is wisdom? It's not smarts, it's not intelligence or IQ points. It's the skill of living. It's knowing what to do. It's knowing how to think and how to live and how to view things. Wisdom is viewing the world as God views it. And it is viewing trials as God views them. Do you lack wisdom? You sure do. And I do too, we all do, we lack wisdom. We lack the wisdom to consistently see trials the way God does, to see them as opportunities for growth and his plan for our growth. We lack the wisdom to deeply and consistently respond to trials with acceptance and joy. We need wisdom in our lives to navigate those trials of life because sometimes within them, we don't know what to do. We don't know what's best. We don't know what to do next. Sometimes we don't even know what to pray for. Romans 8 talks about that. Sometimes we don't even know what to pray for. Here's a start. Pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom, ask God. And you can pray this with unusual confidence. Those who ask him for wisdom in faith, without wavering, believing that he gives wisdom generously, believing that it's his nature to give and give and give, believing that God does not give this wisdom reluctantly or half-heartedly or pessimistically or skeptically. For those who ask like that, he gives wisdom. So just ask. Just ask him for wisdom. Tell him you don't know what to do. Pour out your heart to him. Do you see how this transforms prayers 
in the midst of our trials. I mean, to begin with, it confronts whether we pray when we face trials or whether we pray at first when we face trials. But even when we do pray, what do we pray for in our trials? Well, I think most of us simply pray that it would stop. There's nothing utterly wrong about praying that trials would stop. But most of us only pray that. For most of us, it is absolutely just a given that that's what we're talking about when we share a prayer request with someone. We say, pray for me, I'm sick. Assumed is that you know to pray that I would get better, that the sickness would stop. We say, pray for me, I have some tests coming up, medical tests next week. That's all we ask. And assumed in that is that we know, our Christian friend knows to pray that the test would come back negative. There's nothing wrong with that. But I wonder if we wouldn't better serve each other to press in a little more about our prayer request to one another. Brother, what do you want me to pray for? What do you want God to do most? We can ask for God to stop your pain. We can ask for God to give us negative results on our tests. But we don't know his mind or his plan. We don't know how he might use whatever's next. We don't know if he's getting out his scalpel. We don't know if he's starting up a chainsaw to work on us. We don't know. But we can pray for wisdom with unwavering faith and confidence, especially in navigating trials. So don't just ask for something to stop. First pray for wisdom in it. Wisdom to see it as God sees it. Wisdom to use it as God plans to use it. And ask him boldly because if we doubt, if we doubt his purposes in our lives, verse six says, we'll be like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Here is the opposite of steadfastness, which was up in verse 2. It's a tossed man. It's a life of reeling and full of instability. It's being literally, in James's word here, it's two-souled. Two-souled, like S-O-U-L. Seeing with double vision, leading a double life. In its worst form, it ultimately leads to a desertion of the faith. Trials can do that. Do you believe it? Haven't you seen it? As a pastor now for, I don't know, 15 years or more, I've, I've seen it many times where people tossed by trials and reeling in trials and being unstable in trials has led to a shipwreck of the faith. So you've got to pray for wisdom, friend. You've got to pray 
that God would help you see the world as he sees it and see problems the way he sees them. And here's a specific example. Third, identity as a trial. That's an example that James uses here. Identity in verses 9 through 11. By identity, I have in mind a whole host of related things. Wealth and lack thereof. Abundance and need. The haves and the have-nots in society. By identity, I, I also mean status as the culture defines it. And those without status. I also mean labels. Labels how we view ourselves, and how others view us. All of that falls under the umbrella of identity. Verses 9 through 11 talk about identity with these two different terms, the lowly and the rich. The lowly and the rich. Did you know your identity can be a trial? Do you know that wealth can be a trial? And poverty can be a trial. Let's start with poverty. Verse 9 says, The lowly brother, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Poverty is a trial. If you don't know that, you haven't been poor enough. Most of us in this room at one time have been poor enough to know that poverty is a trial. Proverbs makes that great prayer request, Lord. Don't let me be so rich that I forget you. Don't let me be so poor that I'm tempted to steal. Poverty is a trial. But poverty is also an opportunity. Poverty is a unique opportunity to be forced to trust God. To feel the need for his provision. In our first couple years of marriage, I was in seminary, working at a church, making Surely less than minimum wage. We didn't have kids yet. Sarah was teaching piano lessons. And sometimes whole families would just quit piano lessons. And so that would affect our income. We were well below the poverty line our first few years of marriage. There were many times where we weren't sure what we were going to eat that night. And then God provided. A family would invite us over. For dinner. These days, paychecks are steady, consistent, and we have more than we need. And I'm scared of what that means for my kids. They don't have the luxury of poverty that we had, at least for a season in our lives. So if you're truly poor, Thank God for it. Thank God for that opportunity. Pray for wisdom in that trial. It is a trial. Trust him in this. Don't long for riches. Riches are a trial too. We'll get to that. But boast in your exaltation, he says. Don't boast in your poverty. Boast in your exaltation. What's he mean? Well, it means that if you're a Christian, you can glory in. However poor you are, however lowly society views you, 
you can glory in the exaltation you have in Christ. Because right now, as a Christian, you are an heir to the throne. You are seated in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ. Right now, you are a partaker of the divine nature, which sounds like heresy, but it's actually in the Bible. Right now, Christian, you've been adopted into the family of God and given all his love and all the promises of of him are yours. You've been bought with nothing less than the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And one day, you will rule and reign with Jesus forever and ever. That's coming. Lowly brother, poor in this world, you will inherit the kingdom of God. You will inherit the earth. You will judge fallen angels with Jesus someday. You will see God's face. You will eat at his table forever. So your identity is not uneducated. It's it's not lower class or lower middle class. It's not blue collar. Your identity is Christ exalted. But as for the rich, here's the rich. You should boast in your humiliation, James says, because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Riches are a trial. Most of us don't think that, maybe ever, and certainly not much but riches are a temptation. We learn this from Jesus' parable about the four soils. One of those soils, well, the seed went into the ground, but it was sown among the thorns, it says in Matthew 13. This is the one who hears the word and presumably seemed to receive it, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Can I encourage you to read 1 Timothy 6 today? 1 Timothy 6 is such a wonderful exposition and warning and teaching directed towards those who are rich and even more harshly to those who desire to be rich. The love of money, Paul says, is the root of all kinds of evil and many have gone astray. By seeking it, they've forgotten that it is not something to set their hopes on. There's an uncertainty to riches. So those of you who are rich, and that is most of us in this room, boast in your humiliation because he only chose fools for Christ, right? Fools are what come into this family He has chosen the lowly in this world. And if you happen to be rich, you didn't get in by that. And your riches are not proof of your obedience or his love. Boast in your humiliation. Boast that you have a savior that was a homeless servant, itinerant preacher. Live fully in light of the transient nature of wealth and possessions in this world. Wealth is uncertain. It's like a dandelion that grows up in a day and it's too dry and the sun's too hot and it withers by the end of the day. 
Your own existence in this world is transient. It's fragile. It's weak. You're here today. You're gone tomorrow. You're about 50 years away, maybe 60 or 70, for some of you in this room, of knowing no one in this world remembering your first name. Most of us in this room, we're not going to be famous enough for people to know us two or three generations past us. You know that? Can you name your great-grandparents' first names? Most of us can't. How's that feel, important guy? How's that feel, powerful exec? You'll be forgotten. Uh, Unless we're his, then who cares who remembers us here on this earth in 50, 60, 70, 80, a million years? We'll be with him. And he will know our names. Whether you find yourself in the trial of the lowly or the trial of honor and riches, Christians must keep their eye on a different reward than any in this lifetime. So fourthly, reward after trials. Verse 12 summarizes And goes back to really what verse 2 began with. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now when you hear crown of life, don't think gold, fancy jewels, kingly kind of stuff. No, James is using imagery from the early Olympic games. And so there would be races... And the one who won the race would receive a wreath placed on his head. Not like we do with gold medals today. They, they got the honor of a wreath placed on their head. And that's the crown that James is talking about. James is saying that those who endure trials to the end, not perfectly, but truly, they will receive the crown. They will be winners at the end. There isn't just one winner at the end. We all are winners if we persevere. The Christian life isn't a competition against other Christians. We're competing against sin. We're competing against Satan. We're competing against our our sinful selves. But the Christian life is like a race. It is like a long marathon. It is painful at times. It is hard. It is bewildering. At times we feel like we can't go on. But James says there is an end and there is a reward and it will be worth it all. The sufferings of this present time aren't even worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. The the light momentary affliction that we go through now is actually working for us in eternal weight of glory. Oh, I know affliction feels so heavy, and it is. But Paul can say it's light and momentary. And glory, that is eternal and weighty. And so that's where we look. We don't look at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. We shall receive that imperishable wreath one day, a crown of life. It's really just a symbol. It's not something we will get. We're not going to have Greek wreaths on our heads in heaven. It's a symbol of eternal life. 
eternal life. Do you have that? Do you know this Jesus savingly? Do you have the forgiveness of sins and the salvation of your soul? Because all this other stuff about trials really matters not unless you got that. These promises do not apply to you, friend, if you're not a Christian. This is written to Christians. God has a plan for Christians. And it means being with him one day in glory, in a salvation that gets finished. But if you're not a Christian, that, that's not the plan. That's, that's not where you're going. In fact, it's only going to get worse. In fact, the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the suffering that will come in the next. So flee to Jesus. Receive his mercy. Do it today. Don't delay. And then you can live your life out with a totally upside down, wonderful orientation to suffering and brokenness and hardships in this world. You can have a resource in prayer called the wisdom of God, which God gives liberally to all who ask. And you can have this hope of persevering through trials and they one day ceasing and receiving a crown of life when it's all done. Christian brothers and sisters, listen to James again. There is purpose in trials. They're for your good. They're for your growth. So you can rejoice in them even when you're just facing the trial, not even in the middle of it yet. There is wisdom for trials. And boy, you need it. And so do I. So seek it, ask for it, receive it, and seek that first. You need that most. Identity in this world especially is a major trial. It was in the first century. It is today. Don't view yourself as lowly or as rich or as self-sustaining or self-made or poor. View yourself in Christ. That first, that foremost. And know that there's a reward for trials for those who endure. A crown that is greater than any riches of this world. It is God himself. It's everything that he has. It's every joy that he could ever give to us. How great it is to be in Christ. Let's pray. And Father, how great it will be one day when we are with you in glory, when we will see our Savior's face and be changed into his likeness, when we will be free from sin, free from the flesh, free from doubts and fears, and yes, also pains and hurts and worries. Oh, in that place we will be one day, the new heaven and new earth, we thank you. We won't even need to lock the gates because there's no threat. We won't even need the sun because Jesus will shine and warm us so perfectly. What a glorious day that will be. We thank you for it. Help us to sing about it now in joy and faith and with great confidence in you and what you will do and are doing. Amen.